and then realized I can't really do it and have it ready. And so I just, what I did is I volunteered Colin Doherty to actually cook. And so Colin and I were back there trying to make sure everything was all ready. And I just told him, I said, next time I volunteer for something, this is just so you guys know, just hide. Don't pick up your phone from me because something's, I'm going to be making a request in some way. And so um, Colin is, is doing a lot of the grilling and my wife's also doing a lot of the other stuff as well. And so I'm just the one that raised my hand. That's it. So uh, anyways, we're going to be jumping into 1 John this morning, um, taking a look at the first four verses. And as I outlined this series based upon other events, things that are going to be taking place over the next several months, I think what we're going to do, just so you know, if you're looking to plan ahead and read along, we're, we're going to be going through 1 John uh, together probably until Mother's Day. Um, and so until May, they'll take a, a few breaks here and there for just a few things, but we, we will be in First John for the next several months. Um, so let me just read the first four verses and then we'll pray. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to gather together. Lord, we thank You for these relationships that we have that have been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. We thank You for the ways in which You lead us and guide us. We thank you for your spirit that you fill us with, and we ask that your spirit would soften our hearts, that we might receive your word this morning, Lord, that you would take these truths found here in these first four verses and sow them into our hearts, that they might grow and bear fruit. Lord, you'd help us even at the outset, Lord, as we're going to be spending time in this first letter of John, Lord, that, uh, Lord, you'd surprise and delight us. Lord, you'd help us uh, just grow in our faith, grow in our love for Jesus, grow in our love for uh, picking up a cross and following Christ, that we might know that we believe in Jesus and that we have this eternal life, that there would be an assurance that uh, increases, a confidence that we have, that you've given us this faith and it's genuine, Lord, as a result of spending significant time in this letter together. And so, Lord, would you do this all for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever seen real, genuine snow? Okay, I, I grew up in Michigan, northern Michigan, so I saw a lot of snow growing up. So I just asked that question, really get to the next question before um, I go down this road of this illustration. I might just scrap it all together based upon your responses. How many of you ever seen a snowmobile? Okay, that's enough for me. Uh, to continue down this. And so snowmobiles are, are fun, but in order to use a snowmobile, you typically need 
snow, so you don't see a lot of snowmobiles down here. But where I grew up, snowmobiles were all over the place. They actually have snowmobile trails, which are kind of running trails and hiking trails when the snow's not on the ground, but they, they have these trails, and, and these trails exist in northern Michigan that will take you all over the state into the Upper Peninsula. Somehow it crosses the uh, Mackinac Bridge and go all over the place. Um, anyway, snowmobiles are fun in the winter, but several years ago, um, there's a story about three snowmobilers in Maine, and they were out on a great day, just riding their snowmobiles across the great state of Maine. And other things that snowmobilers like to do sometimes is, is they like to ride across frozen lakes. And not just snowmobilers. I grew up, and, and some people actually like to drive their vehicles out onto the lake when they're going ice fishing. And I share that with you because I know we're in Georgia, and sometimes we might get a little bit of ice over a pond, but when you go up north, ice actually forms on lakes to such a place that you can drive a vehicle on it. And it's, it's sort of safe. Now you can YouTube as many videos as you want, and you'll see trucks that fall into the water. And I don't believe they're insured at that point once you drive on the lake. Anyways, on this day, these three snowmobilers were riding across lakes. And um, they had already successfully crossed three frozen lakes, and they were on their fourth lake. And as they were traveling at about 40 miles an hour, uh, they were forced to make a split-second decision. As they looked out across this, what they thought was a frozen lake, only to find no more ice. And so the ice had gone away, and they just saw open water. And so they were forced to make a split-second decision at that moment were they going to stop and turn around, or were they going to keep on going? Were they going to gun it? And there's this term there where they skim across the water. And I'm sure some of you, right, have seen videos of that. And so these guys do it, and they do it for fun. Some guys do it when there's no snow on the ground. They just do it across the lake. And you can Google that as well. And so these guys were forced to make a decision. Would they stop, or would they just continue to go forward and gun it? And so one rider said the following. He said, I just thought to myself that as long as the sled is moving and I'm sitting on it, I'll be able to breathe and live. If I end up in the water, I don't have a chance. And so this really was a life and death situation. In fact, two of the three snowmobilers survived, one didn't. So all of them decided to gun it. One of them ended up traveling two miles on open water before he reached shore. The other one went about half a mile. I don't know what happened. I don't know why, if they were together or how that. I don't have the rest of those details, so don't try to figure that out either. Just know one went two miles, one went a half a mile, and the other one they never found. They ended up finding his snowmobile some 30 feet at the bottom of this lake, but they never found his body. So these men, and I share this story with you, is because these men thought... They thought they were on sure ground. They thought that they were on solid ice that would allow for them to just enjoy their day. And then one moment they're having fun. And then the next moment they find themselves on thin ice and they're forced to make a decision. And they find out that their ground wasn't as solid as they thought it was. And I share that with you because I asked you this question. Have you ever felt like that? 
Have you ever felt like you were traveling on sure and solid ground in regards to your faith, only to find that your faith really wasn't as strong as you thought it was? Maybe you found yourself doubting, you found yourself shaken a bit by the circumstances of life. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and have always gone to church and you really can't remember a time in your life where you didn't believe in God. But as you've gotten older and life has gotten harder and oh, does it get harder, you find yourself doubting. Doubting all those things you were taught to believe growing up. Doubting all those things you've read about. Doubting all those things that you've been taught about Jesus. Or maybe you're a parent. And you've been faithful to disciple your child or children with the gospel and with God's word, but your kids haven't quite responded the way that you have hoped that they would respond or the way in which you've prayed for them to respond. And so you kind of find yourself questioning, is Jesus really the power of the gospel to save? Is this good news about Jesus all that it's cracked up to be? Maybe you just find yourself tired of all the sacrifice, all the serving. And as you look around, you you see this world around you. You see neighbors, maybe you see fellow students. or you You just see people out there in this world who don't actually love Jesus, who aren't actually picking up a cross and trying to follow Jesus, but they just look like they're having so much fun. They're just enjoying life, being able to do whatever it is they want to do, whenever it is they want to do it. And then you just find yourself at thinking, is this, is this worth it? Maybe you're here this morning and you're just wondering, like, why am I here? Why, what's the point of being here? Is it worth it? Or maybe you just lack the joy in Christ that you once had when you first believed and you just, you just don't know how to get it back. And just maybe yourself, you find yourself questioning, is, is it worth trying to find that joy? See, if you think this way in any way, whether you're thinking it right now or you've thought this way in the past or, or doubts may come in the future, what I want you to know is, is you're, you're not alone. We, we live in this world and we seek to follow Christ. And a lot of times we, we think we're stronger than we really are. And in reality, we find out we're traveling on thin ice. And we're forced to make a decision in that moment. Are are we going to continue to move forward, pressing hard into Christ, or do we want to just put the cross down? See, John wrote this letter to encourage believers. Believers who are doubting. Doubting real things that they once were taught about Jesus, real things that they believed about Jesus. But false teachers had come into this church and these churches and they were seeking to trouble these believers by teaching lies about Jesus. They were teaching them that the way to salvation, there's a couple different things they were teaching. We'll get into more detail throughout our time in John. But just in general, some were teaching them that the way to salvation was actually received through some special and secret knowledge that was only given to certain people who were privileged enough to receive it. This was kind of this this special way to salvation through a special revelation that only a select few could receive. 
they were also teaching a philosophy, and this is kind of what we're going to talk about today a little bit, is, is, that, is that the spirit was really good. The spirit and the soul, those are good things, but the body, the flesh, that, that's just straight evil. And so there's sort of this dichotomy between these two things. And this had an effect upon their theology as well as how they practiced or how they practically lived out their faith in Jesus. And John's going to address these things. Theologically, the effect of that sort of wrong thinking sort of worked its way out in a question like this. If the soul is good or the spirit is good, but the body's bad, then, then the question would be, how could a holy, perfect God actually come to earth and clothe himself in sinful human flesh? This was a real sort of question that they had to really wrestle through, and it's a theological one. Basically, they're saying, did God really put on human flesh? Was Christ really fully God and fully man at the same time? And, and these false teachers were, were sort of teaching a, a way around that. To say, no, not really. Some would say that he, didn't, he wasn't fully God and fully man. He just appeared. He just appeared to put on human flesh. Some would even say that Jesus physically was, was more like a ghost. You might be able to see him, but you couldn't actually go up and shake his hand. You couldn't actually give him a hug, and you, and you couldn't be hugged by him because, because he was kind of a ghost, because you can't put this Holy Spirit, and I say Holy Spirit, inside a sinful body. That's what these false teachers were sort of teaching. Others who held this view would say that Jesus was a real person, but he wasn't actually God in the flesh. Instead, what they taught was that God sort of descended upon him as a spirit, as his baptism, and then right before he died on the cross, he sort of left the body. And so these are theological things, and as I've wrestled through this, I'm, I'm trying to think, okay, how does that matter to us in some ways? Because in, in some ways, I feel like, well, we've got this pretty nailed down at this point. We really believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. But, but they didn't. And we'll get to how it affects us in just a few moments. But, but it didn't just affect them theologically. Eventually, this wrong thinking sort of worked itself out in a, in a wrong way of living. You see, practically, this meant then if the body was bad but your spirit's good, well, then you need to do something with the body because we all have bodies. If we're going to follow Christ and we're going to be saved, then, then we got to figure out how to live this out if we think this way, which is wrong. And so you, you have to do maybe one of two things. You, you have to treat your body harshly is what they would say. you, you got to deal with it. You just have to put it to death. They did all sorts of crazy things in that way. And on the other side of that is probably the one that we would lean a little bit more towards. Is if you really believe the body's bad and it has really no value compared to your spirit or your soul, then what that does is it frees you up to sort of be licentious. Meaning, if the body's bad and it has no value, you can do whatever you want with it. Do you understand? And that's kind of where they were leading more towards. And I feel like that's probably more of our human tendency is, is to take that point of view and to go into that side of the temptation is, is we get to do whatever we want because this doesn't really matter. 
Does that make sense? And so we can be licentious. We can just give ourselves over to all sorts of physical sins and do whatever we want in this body because it doesn't matter. Which then translates to, does sin really matter? If we're going to follow Christ, is it okay for us to give our lives to just just all sorts of different sins in the body because the body has no value, according to these false teachers? I think that's our biggest temptation in the world we live in, is to think that we're just free to do whatever it is we want to do because we have the Savior in Christ who's died and paid the penalty for all of our sins. And so even though we don't really have false teachers today that are, I think, as bold in, and I'm saying in this church. There are false teachers all around out there. I think false teaching like this, it it has infiltrated our thinking in some way and our culture in some way. It just looks a little different and it's talked about in a different way. But John wrote this letter with a purpose. He's going to address all those things I just shared. He, he wrote this letter with a purpose, and we find that purpose in 1 John 5, 13. You don't have to turn there, but as you spend time in it, just know he, he told us why he wrote this letter. He wrote it for this reason. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I wrote these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he wrote this letter so that there would be an assurance that we believe correctly and that we've come to know Jesus rightly. And he kind of maps out for us by by showing us this is what it looks like. So that we might not have any doubts. So that we might know that, that the ice we're traveling on is solid. That we might have the hope of this eternal life. And so what we're going to learn though in these first four verses is this truth. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, we must keep him at the center of our lives. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, we must keep him at the center of our lives. And we're going to see this truth unfold in three points this morning. In our first point, we see that Jesus is the word of life. So this letter begins, if you've noticed, it begins without a formal introduction. There's no, there's no, hey, my name's John and I'm writing this letter to you, the people from Asia Minor, because I love you and may the grace of God be with you and your dear brothers and sisters and I can't wait to be with you. No, he just jumps in to defending the gospel. He just jumps in and gets right to the point that Christ is who he says he is. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Doesn't that sound good? It just sounds good. That's how John writes. Go to, go to the Gospel of John you're going to see that same sort of writing, the rhythm that's in there. It just makes you want to read it again and again and again. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. That is the word of life. That's what he's telling us here. And this word of life is Jesus Christ. 
Now, we do know from John's other writings that he likes to use words like word and life to describe Jesus. In his gospel, he wrote it this way, in the beginning was the word. This is John 1, 1, not 1 John 1, but John 1, 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So make no mistake. Jesus is the word of life. He's the one, you just put these things together, he's the one who perfectly communicates who God is through his life, through his teaching, through his actions, through his person. And he's also the one who gives life to all who believe in him. And what John wants us to know about Jesus, who is the word of life, is that he's real. That he's real. That's what he's doing here in these first four verses. He's just saying, this Jesus, this word of life, he's real. He is who he says he is. Don't believe those lies. And so he just immediately goes into defending Jesus. He wants us to know that he's not a made-up person. He's not. He's not some mythical figure that was sort of created by someone because they needed some help to sort of cope with their bad days. He's a real person. He wasn't just a good man and a great teacher that did some really great things for people when he lived. John wants us to know he was and is God in the flesh. He's fully God and he's fully man. And see, these things matter. These things matter. They, 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 the way we think about Jesus will affect the way in which we, we live our lives. These people whom John was writing to, they, they weren't eyewitnesses. Most likely they were second or third generation Christians who got saved through the proclamation of the gospel. So they weren't there following Christ. This letter was written at the end of John's life. He's writing to people that didn't actually see Jesus with their own eyes. They didn't actually hear Jesus' teachings. They're a lot like us today. Men and women who had to walk by faith and not by sight in regards to who Jesus was. And so John, wasting no time seeking to destroy these false teachers' claims about Jesus to help these people know who Jesus really was and is so that they might have a confidence that they actually know Jesus and possess this eternal life. And what he wants them to know is that Jesus is the word of life who was there at the beginning, making all things new by the power of his word, creating things. He's the word of life that created man in his image after his own likeness. Jesus is God the Son that came to earth as a man, fully God and fully man. He put on human flesh. He put on human flesh and he really lived a real life just like us doing very similar things that we do each and every day, minus a lot of the technology. 
See, Jesus didn't just magically appear in this world. He was born as a baby and he grew into being a man. He had an earthly mother. He had a father that he had to obey. He had brothers that he had to learn to live with. He had to live life like we live life with really nice people and really mean people all around him. He had to endure temptations like we experience. The difference was he never gave in to any of those temptations. He was perfect in all of his ways. See, he was a real person, and at the same time, he was 100% God in the flesh. Now, it's at this point where John draws our attention to the fact that he was not walking by faith alone. But he actually got to see Jesus. He actually got to hear Jesus. And he tells us that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus. This is important because think about those false teachers saying lies about Jesus, making these claims, which, which then people started to believe, and then it started to affect the way they lived, and then it affected what they really did with their lives, whether or not they had eternal life or not. And so again, he writes this. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And so that's really important because what he's saying here is, I know Jesus. I'm writing this letter to you as someone who has actually heard him. I was present when he taught. My ears actually heard the voice of Jesus. He goes on, he says, which we have seen with our eyes. Again, what this means is that John, along with the apostles, he actually saw Jesus. Think about that. He's an eyewitness, and he's saying, you're believing lies about him. I just want you to know, I know him. I I could tell you what color his eyes were. I could tell you how tall he was. I got to imagine, this is just the way my mind works, I got to imagine that he and probably the other apostles could probably do a pretty good impression of Jesus. You know, because we all kind of have these quirks. Even though Jesus was a man and fully God, I got to imagine he had a few quirks, meaning he walked a certain way, or when he talked, his hands probably went in some direction or some way or something like that. And so what John and the other apostles would be able to say is, this is who he is. I've heard him, and these eyes right here, they've, they've actually looked into his eyes. He's, he's real. He goes on and he says, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. And so why do you think it's important for him to say, no, I've seen him, I've heard him, and I've actually touched him? Because false teachers were saying, you couldn't touch him because he wasn't really fully man and fully God. He was just sort of this ghost-like figure that you could see sometimes, but, but nobody ever got close to him. I know it seems crazy being so far removed from that in, in some ways, but what John is saying is, no, this, this, this man was real. He was fully God, and he was fully man, and I could, I could actually touch him. I could shake his hand. I could wrap my arms around him and give him a hug, and, and he hugged me as well. I, I know him. He's real. And he goes on, he says, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
Again, he's just making it very clear from the beginning that Jesus was no myth and no fairy tale. He was God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. A genuine, real Savior who came into this world to live in our place. And then die on a cross for all of our sins so that we would be forgiven and have the hope of eternal life. And John writes this letter so that we wouldn't just have the hope of it, we would know that we wouldn't have a doubt, that we would know that that we have eternal life because we trust not in ourselves, but instead we trust in Jesus. John Piper wrote the following about Christ being a stumbling block. And I realized, I, I think I probably only gave you half the quote, so we'll get there. He writes the following, he says, The stumbling block of the incarnation is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particularly inspired book, the Bible, that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. So he's just saying, the stumbling block is this. If Jesus is real, then it means a lot. It means what he says is true. It means what is written in here is true. And it's not just true, it means that it has authority over our lives. Meaning we don't have authority over our lives. And he goes on to write this. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of a man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. Do you understand that? If Jesus is who he says he is, that means we're not who we always think we are. And by that I mean we're not in control of anything. We can't save ourselves. We can't give ourselves eternal life. We are not the measure of all things because God, who came and clothed himself with human flesh, his name is Jesus, is the measure of all things. Does that make sense? We don't save ourselves. We are not the boss of ourselves. God has been so kind and loving to send his son to save us and to give us eternal life. He is our savior. He is our king. He is our Lord. And we submit to him. So before we move on to our second point, I want to ask a question. This is what John's sort of getting at here in the opening. And it's just this simple question. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you really believe he is? And, and by this, I, again, this is where I wrestle. I didn't grow up a believer. I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in the North. It looks a lot different than this. There's not a lot of Baptist churches up there. I didn't grow up in a home where I had parents who were teaching me about Jesus. I didn't, I didn't have the Bible answer ready to come off my lips because I didn't, I didn't know it. didn't encounter 
anything about Jesus probably until I was 13, and then I didn't really believe it. But having now been in the South for more years than not, and raising my kids in the South and in this culture, I'm aware that it's easy to kind of just throw out the Bible answer. When you say, who is Jesus? I know you're going to say, well, he's fully God and he's fully man because I'm sitting in church and my pastor said that. But what I'm really asking here is for you to really take an honest look in your hearts and answer that question. Don't give me mom and dad's answer. Don't give me the answer that, that, that you know you have to give, but what, is, what does your heart really say? Do, do you really believe in this Jesus that, that John's laying out for us? Have you really trusted in him? Surrendered your life to him? Do you believe he's fully God and fully man? This leads us to our second point. We learn the following. Jesus gives us fellowship with God and one another. In verse 3, John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is this. The Jesus that we saw with our own eyes and have heard with our own ears, we have proclaimed also to you we have we've not kept this a secret that's what he's getting at there again remember the false teachers salvation comes through this secret knowledge they say no it's not a secret we've heard this and we've proclaimed it this is this is public this is good news for all to hear that all might come to know christ and be saved by him that all might be brought into fellowship. That's what John's, John's calling here, this, this fellowship. And by fellowship, what I mean here is, and he means, is a participation in, a sharing of deep things that we all have in common. And this fellowship and the stuff that we share is the good news about Jesus. And it's really important. It's really important. Because we don't get this fellowship, this participation, any other way except being saved by Christ. He brings us into this part, our partnership or participation with one another and ultimately with God. And we receive it through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And this is one of the things I absolutely love. And if you've been around our church for the number of years I've been here, you just, you just know this. I, I love this uh, benefit of the gospel, so to speak. This fellowship that we enjoy through faith in Christ alone. And what I love about this is, one, it's a gift. It's a gift. Everyone who's been saved through faith in Christ is brought into this fellowship with God and with one another. And that's good news. Because we, we can't create these relationships. You can't manufacture this fellowship. You can't bring yourself into this fellowship. Christ brings us into, us into it and he forever secures us in it. And what it means is that these relationships we have with other believers are tight. Because they're eternal. This is one of those things that it's hard to get our minds around sometimes. And I know because I have, I have a big family extended family on, on my side and my wife's side and, and our family we, we love each other especially when you get my wife's side of the family together 
if all of my wife's family showed up and were in church here today, here's what would happen. I don't know how many are there. There's probably a hundred and some. I'm looking for some of them. They take over everything. And you would know they're here. They just, they walk in. There's going to be about 150 and everybody's really, really close because of certain things and suffering that they've walked through. And they take over every room they get into. And I love that family. They're a lot of fun. But, but that family is not this family. Because Christ died ultimately for this family. I'm not saying he didn't die for some of them. I'm just saying the relationships that we have with one another through faith in Christ, they're just eternal. And Christ even talks about it in the Gospels. They, they actually have a little bit more value than our, than our blood relatives because these are eternal relationships. And it's important for us to understand because what it means is that these relationships are worth investing in. They're worth fighting for. And not just leaving behind or taking for granted. If you just look around, and I know some of you may be guests here today, and you're coming from a, another church and and, and we're grateful to God for that. But what you need to understand and what we all need to understand is these relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Marriages don't last forever. They're not going to happen in heaven. Friendships, as, as, as great as those things are, they don't last forever. Not guaranteed to be eternal unless it's a brother or sister in Christ. But the church, the body of Christ, it's eternal. And Christ brings us into that. But before we move on to our final point, this final point is going to be shorter, I want, I want to ask you to consider this question. Knowing that Jesus died for you and has brought you into fellowship with other, others whom he has died for, the question is this. How can you love those he's died for better? And since we're at the beginning of the year, I'd say this year. In particular, I guess what I'm, what I'm after here and ask you to consider is, is think about a brother or sister, maybe in your church, whether it's this church or you attend some other church. How can you love them in the ways in which Christ has loved you better? Is there somebody that the Lord has particularly drawn you to right now in this moment where you just think, I, I need to lay my life down for this brother or sister? I need to pursue this brother or sister. I, I need to forgive this brother or sister. Maybe you've been holding them hostage because you've been bitter towards them. So who is it that the Lord's calling you to love as Christ has loved you? In our final point, we see this. Jesus is the source of true joy. In this fourth verse, John writes the following. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, John wrote this letter to encourage and build up Christians in their faith. He was concerned that they would buy into false teachers' lies about Jesus. He was concerned that they would turn away from trusting in Jesus and find themselves out of fellowship with God and others. So he wrote this letter to help genuine believers understand that their joy is ultimately found in Christ when they keep Christ at the center of their lives. David Allen in his commentary wrote the following. He said, 
Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by means of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Joy describes a reality in life of genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Joy is a spirit of exaltation regardless of circumstances. Joy is a sense of supernatural strength that can only come from the Lord. Then he quotes Nehemiah where he says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so what, he, what he's doing here is he's, he's sort of differentiating between joy and happiness. See, we, we can be happy, right? We, we, can, we can have this sort of excitement and um, I want to use the word joy, but I'm not going to use the word joy because I'm trying to define joy. In a way. You, you can just be happy because life's going well. But what he's getting at here is that this true and genuine joy, this exaltation regardless of circumstances is it's present whether life is going well or not this doesn't mean we can't be discouraged or experience any sadness but what he's saying is that true and genuine joy is a gift it's a gift it's a gift that the lord gives to us through faith in christ when the spirit dwells in us because this this joy is not tied to a circumstance but it's rooted and grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is why James, in his letter, can command us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. And you say, be, be happy, whatever the circumstances. He's just saying, count it a joy. When you meet various trials, when, when life's good and life's bad, when it's easy and it's hard, count it a joy. And he goes on to tell us why, because the Lord's at work and he's doing these things. Well, that joy, it's a gift. It's a gift that the Lord gives to us that's not dependent upon a good day or a bad day, but it's fully dependent on knowing and being known by Jesus Christ. Only God can give us this joy, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Since John wrote this letter to help us know that we have eternal life, I think it would be good for us, in closing, to ask, do we possess this joy? Probably going to be a lot of questions throughout First John, because it, he gives us some tests. And the tests are meant to be good. He's, he's meant to help us walk through and examine our lives and say, yeah, I'm in there. I, I believe this. I think this. I I live this way. In a way, he's saying, is there evidences of grace in your life? And so in closing, let's, let, let's just ask some questions. Would you consider yourself a joyful person? Again, this doesn't mean you can't be sad or discouraged. I know the Lord's given us all sort of different personalities and tendencies, but, but is the joy of the Lord present in your life? Some of us have to fight for joy, and by that I mean we have, to, we have to fight really hard to just keep our eyes focused on Christ and keep him at the center of our lives. I mean, the way that looks in my life is when I have those bad days, and I do have bad days, there's just constant rehearsing of the gospel going on in my mind over and over again. I'm not making that up. It's just a, Lord, thank you for sending your son to die for me. It's a, Jesus, you died for all of this. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful that you shed your blood for my sins. I'm grateful that you took care of my greatest need, even though the only need I can see at the moment might be financial, it might be relational, 
but I have to remind myself that as great as those needs may seem, my greatest need has already been taken care of. And that's where I find joy. So would you consider yourself a joyful person? Maybe ask somebody, ask a spouse, ask a kid, ask somebody that you know well, ask, would they consider you to be a joyful person? Joy is made complete in those who trust in and surrender their lives to Jesus. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, I recommend we surrender our lives to him. I recommend we we give ourselves to picking up our cross and following him and keeping him at the center of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would just pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, you'd bless us. Lord, you'd bless us with greater understanding and knowledge of the gospel. Lord, you'd bless us with greater joy. Lord, when we meet various trials, Lord, you'd bless us with greater unity. Lord, as you've brought us into fellowship with one another, Lord, through faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about reconciliation where relationships are broken. Lord, you'd put in us just a desire to forgive one another. In light of all that we've been forgiven of, Lord, that that we would be quick to encourage one another of the gospel and forgive one another and grow relationally. Lord, would you bless the relationships in our church? Protect our unity. And Lord, would you give us great faith? Lord, as we walk through this letter together, that Lord, we would we would leave, Lord, with a greater assurance. Lord, that we've received this eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.